introducing the Brain Can Do Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Brain Can Do Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Stevenson. Today I'm going to share with you an interview with a colleague of mine, Gary Blunt. Gary very strongly believes that individuals sometimes need to change the paradigm. By that he talks about when you're faced with a problem, you need to look at and potentially change your mindset to be able to overcome it. Now this was definitely put to the test a couple of years ago when Gary was diagnosed with head and neck cancer. Now there was an article in a cancer journal a couple of years ago written by Michael Antoni and Ferdas Bar, where they were looking at this link between the psychological and the physical. Now it's been known for a while that the neuroendocrine process and the immune system are both massively influenced by stress. So it makes sense to conclude that we need to understand what is effective stress management and how much of an impact mindset can have on this. So today is a different story of success. Whereas in the last three episodes, we've looked at individuals with their success in their careers. Today, we're going to look at Gary Blunt's changing the paradigm and his success and how he approached his illness. So Gary, you've had a, a fascinating career, Marines, prison service, successful boarding house master, but actually we're not going to talk about any of that today. Uh, we're going to talk about your experiences of having neck and head cancer and your mindset and how you've approached going through all of this. So if it's okay, can you just start by giving us an overview of what you've been through the last few years? Yeah, well thanks um, Ben for inviting me on. I'm really looking forward to this actually. It's almost a bit like Morecambe and Wise and the Andre Previn sketch where he's playing the notes and all the right notes, but he's not necessarily playing them in the right order. So I'll hopefully I'll get my story in some kind of order and I don't go off too much at a tangent, which, I've, which I tend to do. So if I take you back to March 2019, had a, had a lump in my throat. And I'd had that lump in my throat on the left-hand side um, in my throat for, crikey, four, five, six weeks and had put it down to some root canal treatment that I had at the dentist. I'd been going backwards and forwards to the dentist. Almost double figures, it was causing me lots of problems, but I was determined to have the root canal treatment and have the final outcome. And there was this swelling, and eventually I thought, well, I need to go back to the dentist to find out what this swelling is all about. Obviously connect, connected with the tooth. And so I'm in the chair, this young dentist is looking at my swelling, looking at my root canal, they take an x-ray, and quite quickly the conversation became a little bit more pastoral. A more senior dentist came in and said, Gary, we don't think the root canal treatment and the swelling in your neck are connected. We need, I need to refer you on an NHS emergency referral. So at that, I just felt the tone had changed somewhat. And I wasn't panicking, I wasn't concerned, but you know, I was, it was almost, I almost felt as if I was going into some sort of process where I'm listening to the experts, I'm listening to what he's saying, and I'm gonna have the NHS referral. So I can still remember driving home, ringing Heidi, my wife, to say, this is what's happened, Heidi. And we both convinced ourselves on the journey home from the dentist back to where I live in Caversham at Queen Anne School, that it must be connected with the tooth because the two just coincided. So anyway, on the 14th day of my NHS two week referral, I end up with an appointment at Wexham Park Slough. And it all went very professional, very, very quickly. 
walked into a room and before I knew it, I was having an ultrasound. Within five minutes of the ultrasound, I'm having a biopsy, which was um, literally a pen going into my neck and there was a click and it would obviously take a sample of what was in my neck from this um, swelling. Had two of those and within a few minutes I was in front of an oncologist, um, a consultant who was then looking at me, talked me through a few things, asked me how I was, um, had a look down my throat, up the nose and down my throat with a scope and I think we all agreed that I needed to be coming back two or three days later to start a series of scans. Um, left there fairly nonplussed, incredibly still feeling as if it's still got to be to do with the root canal. It can't be anything else, it's to do with the root canal. <laughs> sort of blindly going along really, just reassuring myself I suppose. Um, on the Thursday that week, so within two days of seeing um, the oncologist, um, I had an MRI, I then had um, a CAT scan, a PET scan, all within 48 hours, and then on the Tuesday, the following week, I'm sat in front of a guy called Dr. Morphy, who I couldn't for some reason shake off. Dr. Morphy, Dr. Morphine, I kept looking at him thinking Dr. Morphine, and this guy was the best looking guy I'd ever seen, and it was like really tickling me that he was the best looking guy that I'd ever seen, and I think it was almost part of my coping mechanism, just making myself feel comfortable. As he's chatting to me, he empowered me slightly, asked about the tooth, and what I thought about the tooth, and I'm sitting there thinking as I'm explaining to him, I'm getting a good result here, it's, it's the tooth, he's letting me talk about the tooth. There was a pause, and he said, unfortunately, Gary, you've got cancer. So from that moment that you've been told you've got cancer, what's going on in your mindset? Um, immediately I had a set of questions. They weren't premeditated in any shape or form because I didn't know what was going to be dispatched, to be honest with you. So when um, Dr. Morphy told me I had cancer, um, my first question, because he then allowed me to ask questions instantly, really. I said, sort of, what level are we at? I didn't realise there were stages of cancer, one, two, three, and four. I hadn't read, read anything to do with Google. I wasn't doing any research on any of this at all. Um, and I was pretty naive, to be honest with you. And he said, well, there are actually stages, Gary. There's stage one, two, three, and four. So I'm looking at him, and I'm now the duty lawyer. I'm hanging on to every word he's saying, but I'm still calm. Heidi's to my right. There's actually a Macmillan, Ness, um, Macmillan nurse slightly further to my right, and I'm having this sort of one-on-one -on -one with Dr. Morphy. And um, he explained level one, two, three, and four, and it was obviously going to get to the bit where I'm going to ask and what, what stage have I got. And as he was talking to me, I was just thinking, do not tell me I've got stage three or four, having explained those stages. So I said to him, I said, Dr. Murphy, um, what stage would I be at then? And he said, you're a one into a two, Gary. He said, that's the first bit of good news. So straight away, I'm getting good news and I'm seeing it as good news. One into a two, that's great news. Could have been a three, could have been a four. Um, so I said, what does that mean then? He said, well, what you've got, you've got a primary cancer at the back of your tongue. Left hand, back of your tongue, you've got primary cancer. He said, that has spread 
if you like, to stage two into your lymph node, which is that swelling on your neck. And that's what's told you there was a problem and what obviously rang the alarm bells of the dentist a couple of weeks ago. He said, the more good news, it hasn't spread any further. So the scans, the PET scan, the CAT scan, the MRI had said to them that this was located at the back of my tongue. And so Dr. Morphy then um, explained to me um, where we were with everything in terms of the prognosis. So he said, the prognosis is excellent, Gary. I said, can you change the word excellent into a percentage, please, so I understand what the word excellent means. And he said, excellent means 90% we will sort this out. There is a caveat there. You need to have your chemotherapy, you need to have your radiotherapy, and there may or may not be reasons why you can't have some of that treatment during the program if your immune system doesn't hold up, that sort of thing. But he says, in terms of the battle plan I've got for you, um, which will be a six-week plan of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, then I'm expecting this to be a really positive outcome. And I'm, I'm, you can quote me if you like, 90% hit rate. So again, all of a sudden, I am having the best news in the world. And this is exactly how I was interpreting it. You know, someone's actually, you know, one in every two, three people are gonna get cancer. We're, we're only immortal for a very short period of time. I was probably now figuring out at the age of 50, well, how old was I, 55 at the time, that um, this was the first, you know, I was Peter Pan up until this particular point. I mean, I was untouchable, nothing was gonna go wrong, and all of a sudden I felt very vulnerable. Um, but. I was in my mind turning and twisting this into a positive straight away. This guy's given me good mood news. I'm a one into a two. I've got a 90% prognosis. He could have just dispatched a death sentence on me and said, I'm sorry, Gary, it's terminal. You've got 16 months to live. And let me tell you, Ben, I've met people like that in, in chemo treatment and radiotherapy. And perhaps we'll talk about them in a little while. So there was light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I asked him, could I live to the age of 80? He said, absolutely. I said, will this change me as a person? He said, that's a really interesting question, Gary. I've not been asked that before. He said, I'm gonna say yes to that. He said, because you're gonna see a world and go into a world that unless you've got what you've got, you wouldn't see otherwise. And he said, you're gonna see love, you're gonna see kindness, you're gonna see empathy, you're almost at an elite level. And, um, Again, I said to him, I said, how will it change me? He said, you're probably gonna be more empathetic. You're probably gonna realize that people do carry a rucksack with rocks on their back. And you're probably gonna appreciate that even more once you come out of the other end. And I could, I really resonated with that because that's my kind of language anyway. You, you, know, you need to be walking in people's shoes, take, a, take one of their footsteps to actually know what's going on in someone's life. So again, that was quite exciting what he was telling me. This conversation was already turned into quite a positive conversation, believe it or not. There was no tears, there was no fear. At no stage did I say, why me? I've never said that. Um, couldn't it be somebody else? I've never said that. Um, I was trying to avoid a sort of quicksand of self-pity. I don't do self-pity. Um, funny enough, throughout the treatment, very few people outside my employer and the school, which meant 500 people straight away, but in terms of my family and my school, my employer, very few people knew about my journey 
up until about this point really where I'm talking about it two years later. So left that initial consultation. It was a sunny day. I can still remember driving away from Wrexham Park. The sun was in my eyes and I felt blessed if I'm honest with you, Ben. I know it sounds a crazy thing to say, but I did feel really blessed that I'd been given an opportunity to beat this cancer. I think one of your, your phrases you've used in conversation with me a lot is about changing the paradigm, mm. changing how we view anything really mm. to make it work for us. And what really struck me when you told me about your diagnosis was, your sentence you said to me was, although I've been told I've had cancer, this was actually the best sort of cancer I could be given. Mm. And for me, that do you think that mindset helped you over those upcoming months in terms of whatever was thrown at you, you managed to look at it in a positive way? Yeah, I, I do think that. I, I think if I go back to the Royal Marines, one of the things that I take back from the Royal Marines, because we all have baggage and we all um, have influences, and one of, there's four traits for the Royal Marines, four things they would expect to see if you're going to get your greenberry and pass out as a Royal Marine Commando. And one of them is cheerfulness in the face of adversity. And taking it on the chin, there's always a way forward, there's always a solution. Um, I wasn't facing palliative care where they were just going to keep me alive for a period of time. They were going to fix this and I just needed to go along with the journey. I needed to go with the process to get to the final outcome. So that quickly um, got me thinking that way. In terms of changing the paradigm, um, we're talking about the pattern, the rhythm, the frequency, um, making change. And I'd quickly changed things in that conversation with him. This was not bad news. This guy had given me world-class great news. And I hung on to that from that very day. So yeah, changing the paradigm. Um, I think we're all capable of doing it. Um, I do believe in the law of attraction. I do believe in reap what you sow. If you want to be negative, you will attract negative people. You will attract negative thoughts. If you want to be positive, you will attract positive people. You will po attract positivity. Your enthusiasm, your positivity, if you can give it, up, give it out, it will come back to you. I still remember about six or seven years ago, I was with a couple of fellow teachers um, in the New Forest. And we were sitting waiting around for some um, girls to arrive on a Duke of Edinburgh expedition back at the campsite. And one of them said to me, he said, Gary, it's impossible to be negative in front of you. It's embarrassing to bring up negativity. I look at you and think, I don't want to be negative because Gary doesn't want to hear it. He's just exuding positivity. Now, that was six or seven years ago that was said to me. I think that's one of the nicest things that anyone's ever said to me. And it's something that's actually stored in my memory bank because I can moan with the best of them. We all can do that. I think moaning wastes energy. I think it takes time. Um, I think it eats into you. And so, yeah, I was going to take all the positivity I could to get through this journey. Looking at because you are a very sociable person, and I think there's two elements that I want to sort of explore in terms of how you approach this. The first being, you say, social media, you didn't put anything on until you were in recovery, and then you talked about your journey afterwards. Was that a, a conscious decision to not put anything whilst you're going through your treatment? Yeah, it was. It goes back to this managing myself. So obviously I had a priority in the fact that I had to tell the girls, my daughters, Sophie, 
Camille and Evie, with Heidi obviously there, that Dad's got cancer. And I think what was important to me was the way they perceived their father. I didn't want to scare them by um, my behaviour, my worry, my fear. Um, there isn't a day goes by where I don't think about cancer, but I don't necessarily show it. I don't need to show it. So again, I wanted the girls, my daughters, to see that Dad was strong, he was happy, it's all going to be okay at the end. So I wanted that very much translated to my daughters in that conversation that we had, sat at home saying, girls, this is a situation, lots of people get this, and guess what, girls? I've got a cancer that science can beat. My mindset, how I'll get through with it, will help you along that journey. So, um, yeah, I did, because <laughs> Blunty, that's me, everybody, can be very outgoing, um, loves to tell a story, and yet I kept this as a very private matter, um, which I think is what you're asking me, Ben. Um, simply not to protect myself. Not I, I think cancer is sometimes described as a pretty lonely journey. You, know, you get lots of empathy. And I suppose what I didn't want was to keep explaining the story. I didn't want people to keep asking me how I was. I was going to get that in the environment I live in anyway. I live in a school, I've got 500 people around me. Staff know, the girls know, the parents know. I was going to get lots of love anyway by default simply because of the situation that I live and work in. And I just didn't feel any need whatsoever to publicise that I got this um, cancer. Um, outside my family, which is a small family, probably four or five people knew. Incredibly, Lee, one of my best friends, flew over from Oman, he dropped everything, teacher in Oman, and flew over to see, see me early on. Steve from Houston was in the country, and the three of us actually were all together around my house for the first few days, uh, preparation for my cancer treatment. So that helped me enormously as well. Yeah, I just didn't want to, I just didn't want to broadcast it. I think it gave me that inner strength. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think the other thing, say, in terms of you being a sociable person then and where you got that social support from, so very supportive, close family, but the, the healthcare professionals as well, and the way you've already described Dr Morphy to us every time I spoke to you, it seemed like you have a lot of admiration for everyone that you, you worked with. You're not a, a Googler. You weren't looking up all the statistics for yourself and second-guessing what was going on. You had complete trust in the healthcare professionals. And how important do you think that was in terms of the what you're going through? That was massively important to me because I picked up very quickly from so from the consultation with Dr. Morphy where he's telling me I've got cancer on the Thursday of that week, I then where I was gonna have my treatment at Reading Hospital, um, met a lady called Dr. Dallas, who's a parent of one of the girls at our school, funny enough, so we were laughing and joking about that. We're sitting in a room, Heidi, myself, Dr. Dallas, and another nurse actually would be supporting me through the process, telling me the programme of events and how it was going to work. So it was going to be six weeks of treatment. Um, that was six lots of chemotherapy on the Monday. And then Monday to Friday would be um, the radiotherapy and I'd get weekends off for good behaviour. And we talked about how that was going to be delivered. There still needed to be some preparation before that happened. And then all of a sudden it was talked about a peg. And I had no idea what a peg was. And a peg is a feeding tube that is put through the abdominal wall into the stomach. Because 
after my six weeks of treatment, the chemotherapy and the radiation, I was going to go into a thing called recovery, six weeks recovery. When Dr. Dallas was talking about six weeks recovery, I was thinking, well, that sounds pretty cushy, six weeks recovery, and then I'll be okay after that. Wrong. In those six weeks of recovery, you're going to be ill. The treatment's finished. The treatment is harsh. You're going to take a kick in, and your body's going to react to that treatment. So that was all explained to me. And then it was explained to me about this peg that goes through the abdominal wall into the stomach, and that's going to feed you, Gary. And I'm thinking, crikey, the level's gone slightly up here because then it was being explained to me the radiation was going to burn, it was going to make my mouth sore. As long as we can maintain your swallowing, your muscular action of swallowing, that's the most important thing by drinking water. But it's probably going to get to the stage, Gary, where you can't take food orally. So you're going to have to have all your nutrition, your fluid, um, all the goodies from food through a syringe, through the pipe into your stomach that you're gonna do yourself and feed yourself, probably for a period of time. If you don't have the peg, Gary, and you can't take food orally, which could easily happen because of the treatment you're having, then you're gonna be laid on your back in a hospital for several weeks with a tube up your nose being fed. So you've gotta make a decision because this is not, this is not a compulsory procedure. So going back to trusting the experts, surrounding yourself with the right people. I felt as if I was in a very much an elite environment. And I recognize elite environments because I've been in one for eight years as a Royal Marine. And I really felt now I was at the elite end of the NHS, what was being delivered. And I decided very quickly I was gonna put all my faith into them. I wasn't gonna read Google. I wasn't gonna self-diagnose. I wasn't gonna be this enthusiastic amateur. I was gonna be compliant and I was gonna do as I was told. So I said to Dr. Dallas, I said, what would you do? That's a good question, Gary. Nurse, what would you do? Would you have the peg or wouldn't you have the peg? I'd have the peg, Gary. Nurse, I'd have the peg, Gary. Then I'll have the peg. You don't need to make a decision yet, Gary. You can go away and think about this. No, 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 I'm having the peg because you two guys have just told me to have the peg. I'll have the peg. And that just was a 25 minute operation. I was sedated a few days later um, and the peg was inserted into my stomach. And from that moment I managed the peg, which was this tube literally swinging around everywhere. My daughters would be saying, Dad, put the peg away. It'd be dangling down. I'd sort of try and tape it to my abdomen, but it would sort of dangle down at times. It was quite funny actually, it was quite amusing. So yeah, to answer your question, Ben, I completely threw myself into a group of people who I knew um, had my back. I had my six. So you had a decision to make, you knew that people had your back, you listened to the professionals and that helped massively in terms of eliminating a lot of potential distractions and other things that could come into it. I guess one thing that unfortunately you were on your own for was the actual treatment and having to be sort of measured up and wear a face mask throughout. Could you tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, because I'm this robust, roughy, toughy, indestructible Royal Marine, but it doesn't quite work like that because we all have strengths and weaknesses. And going back a few years, I picked up a little bit of claustrophobia, incredibly, in Aosta Valley, um, on an outdoor trip with a, another school that I worked for. 
and we were in some squeezers, which was basically squeezing yourself in between all these rocks. And uh, it was in between the climbing, the climbing what we were doing on this face, the south-facing climb. It was beautiful, great experience for the kids. And I experienced claustrophobia for the very first time in these squeezes. And I was actually having to stay calm, control my breathing. Sort of went into Wim Hof mode of controlling my breathing, and um, felt claustrophobia without showing it. Going back to my MRI, which was the first scan I had at Wexham Park, I went in to have my MRI and there was a guy managing the situation. He was going to take me through the MRI. We had a little bit of banter. We got on very quickly. You know, I'm engaging. He's coming back. We're having a bit of a laugh and a joke. And he said, you're going to get the full Monty, Gary. You're in there for an hour. An hour, and I'm looking at this tunnel, which many people go through for many kinds of reasons. And so I said, okay, let's just bring it on. So anyway, I was gonna have this picture taken for an hour. I lay down on the plinth, which is gonna transport me into the dome. I'm pretty cool at this stage. And um, all of a sudden, I'm obviously getting some very special treatment. I had this metal plate onto my face which had a screen as if I'm putting my hands in front of my face down my palm right up against my eyes and nose I can't see a thing and all of a sudden I'm being deposited into the MRI machine I've been given a panic button which says no way I'm using a panic button I went in within 15 seconds I squeezed the panic button I was out because of the banter we'd had prior to me going in there, this guy was saying, crikey, Raw Marine Commando, because I'd given it all that. And I said, yeah, I said, I just need to stand up. I need to shake myself down. Right, I'm very tactile. Yeah, okay, I'm okay. I'm good, I'm good to go, I'm good to go. Full of claustrophobia. I, there was this fear kicking in now. And back I went in. Got through that hour having to really concentrate on what I was doing, knowing, knowing I had to have this picture. He actually offered me a shorter version. Gary, as long as you can do 20 minutes, we get a picture. I said, but you want the hour? He said, yeah, I do want the hour because we get a better picture. I said, you're gonna have the hour. So again, I was trusting myself, um, knowing that I had to be compliant. I want the best picture possible for all of this. So that claustrophobia kicked in and then it came to I've been diagnosed, I'm gonna start my treatment, there's the preparation, and they make you, with my head and neck cancer, when they give you the radiotherapy, you're put onto a plinth, and you're bolted down to the plinth, because you can't be moving, because the radiotherapy is obviously, we're talking physics now, we're talking mathematics, this needs to be a direct hit straight on the cancer to kill the cancer, and the chemotherapy is dispatched in a different way, and the two work together to complement each other. So this face mask is being built for me where I'm literally laying down and these lovely nurses who are just kind, compassionate, patient, all the qualities that you'd want are basically molding this mask to my face, my neck, my head. And I automatically felt fight or flight. I don't like this. I feel claustrophobic. I stayed calm, 
express myself calmly, ladies, can we just take this off, please? We just need to make sure it goes hard, Gary. It felt skin tight. And at the end of that, they took it off and I went, wow, that's all a bit much for me, to be honest with you. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm, no, 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 Gary, we see all kinds of human emotions go on right now. He says, you're doing brilliantly. You're calm, you're expressing yourself. So they're reassuring me, even though I thought I was on a bit of a fail here at the end of the day. Failure equals learning and all that sort of stuff. I need to work around this fail. How do I fix it? I said, I think I've had enough for today because I was meant to then have the face mask done and then sort of be measured up with all the readings where they were going to actually put the, 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 the radiotherapy radiation into me. So there's other stuff to be done. So I went home that evening, got up at four o'clock in the morning, had a nightmare, cried, said to Heidi, I'm not sure I can go through with this. So I had all those human emotions, um, went back the following day gone a little bit further with the process of the fitting but then of course they want to bolt the mask onto the plinth so I'm absolutely can't move found that difficult I said look I think I've got a way of solving my uh, I've got a solution here can I just sit up please in a chair that chair there can you just put the mask up against my face so I feel as if I've got some control and just press it up against my face so I get used to the feeling of the mask which was now this hard plastic be moulded to my face. They thought it was a brilliant idea, they hadn't heard of that one before, we did that. Um, and I said, wow, that's enough for me today. So all of a sudden we're on day three of what should have happened, all in about an hour or two. So we, I go back, I'm scared, um, I'm trying to work out a process all the time, trying to spin it, how can I fix this situation? And then I thought about the shield's protected me. This shield, this mask, I'm a knight in armour. This is my armour. This is protecting me. This is gonna this is gonna save my life at the at the end of the day. And things change very quickly for me in my mind there. So I've, I've changed the paradigm, if you like, I've changed the rhythm, I've changed the way I'm thinking. It took that armour, the shield, this is protecting me. I'm telling myself a story, but it's working for me. I'm talking myself through it, I'm coaching myself. There's self-care going on there, there's positive mindset. There's all sorts of things going on. And with that, the mask was fitted, I'm bolted down, they've taken the measurements, I'm on ready for treatment. Because it had got to the stage where my treatment might have been delayed had I not got this mask fitting done when I got it done. So. Yeah, I was um, very much having to manage myself there. That was my Achilles heel. That was my, if you like, my one moment of weakness. And having had tears, nightmares, I was still determined to figure a way out, you know, figure it out. How are you, you going to fix it? Dislocated expectation. Dislocated expectation. I, le I learned that in the Royal Marines. Clive Woodward actually took his England rugby team in 1999 before the World Cup down to meet the Royal Marines. Because he didn't think England rugby at that particular point knew what an elite model looked like. Jack the lads, wear what they want, turn up to train, can't do their shoelaces up, need fathering. I'll take you down to meet some real men. It's in his book actually. And so they went down there and what he really had in mind was, let's show these guys an elite performer how they behave, how they dress, their language, how they look after each other, 
Um, and he discovered this thing called dislocated expectation, which he hadn't heard of before. What do you do when it goes wrong? How are you going to fix the problem? It's a scrummage, it's a line out, it keeps breaking down. He didn't have players on the pitch who could fix it. And if they were going to win the World Cup, further down the line, he needed problem solvers on that pitch. And he learned from going down to Royal Marines Commando Training Centre that any problem is fixable. And it's described as dislocated expectation. And I think my expectation was, I'm gonna be a chirpy chappy, I'm gonna keep myself entertained, I'm gonna be good fun, I'm gonna smile my way through this. And all of a sudden, I hit the terror wall. I hit this, bang, here's a problem, claustrophobia. How are you gonna deal with it? And it took me a while to fix it. Gary, thank you for your, your honesty with all of that and taking us through that journey. I think some really powerful insights you've given us there. Looking back, as you say, one of the things you were told is this whole process will change you as a person. Mm. In a summary, what do you think has been the biggest changes for you? Um, going back to what I said earlier, you're only immortal for a very short period of time. That actually comes from a song called Dreamline by Rush. I love rock music off the Roll the Bones album. You're only immortal for a very short period of time. Um, I think it's made me appreciate even more every day you get up in the morning. I think it's made me appreciate, and I was that chap anyway, enthusiastic, have a routine how to get out of bed, you know, I'm ready to go. But I think it's, I think it's amplified that even more for me. Um, secondly, I think I learned an awful lot about tolerance, compassion, empathy, teamwork, professionalism, love that the NHS gave me. Um, I think I've learned an awful lot from those people. Um, a privilege to have gone through that system, which sounds quite odd and a little bit perverse. Um, what I went through with a diagnosis that I had was a privilege and that sounds quite strong where's he coming from there but it really was I think it's woken me up a little bit as well I think you all need to recalibrate at times um, and I think it probably goes back to where I said to Dr Morphy about the um, question about being a better person will it change me and I think it has made me a better person actually I think I am a little bit more empathetic now I was always quite quick to judge and I don't suffer fools and you know, the Royal Marines have probably taught me that and dealing with things in a sort of quite a difficult environment in the prison service, you need to be switched on, you need to be motivated, it needs to happen now, you know, instantly. The world of education is very different to that, it's a slower pace, it's a more gentle environment. Um, and I think it's, it's softened me, if I'm honest with you, I think it has softened me. You know, I think my daughters would say that as well, I'm sure Heidi would, you know, um, I know it sounds absolutely ludicrous, it's been a good experience. And if I was going to have cancer, you gave me the right one. Yes, it was invasive, it was a very awkward position, but Ben, I went through chemo, I call it chemo spa, even chemo was chemo spa, they give you sandwiches and crisps and they look after you and they love you all day long. 
and yet they're giving you this poison that kills all the good cells and bad cells and makes you feel ill for a couple of days. But I was meeting people there who really were warriors, really brave people. I'd be fixed to my cannula, I'd be, I'd, I'd be, attached, I'd be attached to a cannula which was feeding me fluids, because um, that was a whole day experience. You were fed fluids, your blood was taken, you had the chemotherapy, you then flood through and um, flushed through again. It was a whole day, it was a six, seven hour gig. And I was meeting people, and of course you had to go to the toilet during this period of time, because you were constantly going to the toilet, because they kept putting fluids into you. So you'd, you'd, you'd be attached via your hand with a cannula to whatever they were putting in, in you at that particular time of day, and you'd off you go on with your trolley, feeling like an old man really, short strides to the toilet. And I was meeting people who were on palliative care, and we'd be chatting away, and they'd be telling me they've got 16 months to live, and, they're having the treatment, the chemo's keeping them alive, they want to see their walk, daughter walk down the aisle and be married, or they want to see the birth of their grandchild. There's a lot of reasons to stay alive, you know. It's, it's, life is you know, precious, it's valuable. And I think speaking to those people who, who I felt so humbled by them, that they had a smile on their face, they were prepared to share their story even though they didn't have that light at the end of the tunnel, and they really didn't have the light at the end of the tunnel, they were still grabbing onto anything they could do. They were on the edge of the cliff, and they were not prepared to let go. They were hanging on, and they were prepared not to let go. And so I was inspired by some very ordinary, brave people. So you've seen that mantra, that motto of appreciating every single day. Mm. And you say that was something that you seem to naturally do and mm. that's been enhanced mm. but you've gone beyond that now and you say you've sort of been re-energized mm. coming through your recovery and really pushing your, your public speaking mm. um, as we say podcasts probably isn't the best medium for those of you listening Gary has been up and down throughout this interview <laughs> he's just been walking around whilst talking um, so do you want to tell us a bit about your, your public speaking and what's what's next for you yeah so I've always I've always been this chap who's liked to stand up and um I quite enjoy being the centre of attention, to be honest with you. And public speaking is probably a brilliant way to develop that. So I fell into education in 98, was a house, I'm still am a housemaster, housemaster. There was a certain expectation to take assemblies, to take chapels. You know and I know the average teacher steers away from that. Ben, you're not one of those people, but I love to stand up on stage. Normally the head will say, Gary, we'll be finished on, in time for period one, won't we? Which I always take as a compliment because the answer is going to be no, we're not. We're going to be late and the teacher's going to give you a hard time. Um, and I can still remember stood up taking my first chapel at Dover College and I was talking about um, the adventure zone and the comfort zone and the misadventure zone and the cruise zone. And my left leg just wouldn't stop shaking. It was going ballistic. I'd never stood in a chapel before behind a dais and spoken to a group of people. But I walked out of there and I've got so much out of it. You know, it, was a it was overcoming my fears, really. Fear equals excitement. You know, and I really do mean that. Fear is temporary, regret is permanent. So I was one of those teachers, getting back on track, who was always happy to stand up in front of the school and talk. Um, so, Having been the Royal Marine, the prison officer, fell into education, been a housemaster, a teacher, responsible for outdoor ed for 23 years in various schools, and now having had cancer, um, I feel as if I've got a story to tell. Um, 
and several stories to tell really and so really I'm, what I'm trying to do is just get out there uh, make myself available for people who want to um, hear me speak and, and share what I've got to say Perfect As I say Gary thank you so much for, for today your, your honesty your sharing these stories so much for us to take away just want to end if anyone there is going through a difficult time or they're getting a bit of bad news what is your one bit of advice what should someone do or think about if they're they're going through a bit of a difficult patch that's a great question i'm not i'm not prepped for that at all my gut reaction to that would be don't get stuck and i spoke to someone about that last week actually i did a presentation last week on zoom for the first time ever i did a zoom presentation and i ended up speaking to one of these postgraduates who's in sales techs world and they contacted me the following day and said, can I just pick your brains, Gary, about a couple of things? And so we arranged a second Zoom. And I spoke about and tried to support this person with some of the problems they have in their life at the moment. And I found myself saying, don't get stuck. It's not necessarily the problem a little bit further down the road or the next problem or this. You can't see the wood for the trees. It's because you got stuck and you're not doing anything about it that's causing you your problem. You know... You, you need to gain some momentum and pick off these things one at a time. Everything's doable. You might need to compartmentalize it, just break it down, a bit like a journey. I've got 100 miles to cycle today. I don't feel like I'm in the mood. Just break it down, five miles here, five miles there. That's what I would say to people. Don't get stuck. Um, seek advice, share your problem, and resist at any just anything you can do not to be stuck try and deal with face on what the problem is excellent advice gary thanks so much for your time so that was gary blunt there and he wasn't finished usually as you know i like to summarize the interviews with my biggest takeaway messages but gary was kicking himself as he wanted to get this in and didn't have the opportunity to do so so he was messaging me afterwards and actually it's a really great summary of his beliefs and the interview as a whole. And this is what Gary sent me. He believes it's the science that fixes the cancer, but it's your mindset that gets you through the treatment and enhances recovery and repair. Some wise words there, definitely, from Gary. As you also heard in the interview, he is available for public speaking events, whether that's any sort of staff training, whether it's teacher training, or anything where you need individuals to get motivated and to change the paradigm, Gary is a great person to get involved there. You can find him on LinkedIn as Gary Blunt. He is on Instagram as gary.blunt.71. And he's also on the Brain Can Do Network at Facebook. So why not join us at the Brain Can Do Network? You can connect with Gary and other like-minded practitioners. Thank you so much for joining us. That's everything for today. Hope you have a great day.